Bonjour, Monsieur Pouliot, et bienvenue au podcast du reprise du Bitcoin. Je m'appelle Vlad et je suis totalement enchanté de ton présence. Do you say Bitcoin or Bitcoin? That's actually a question that I've had for a while. Um, we actually, we just say Bitcoin. It's, a, it's pronounced pretty much the same exactly, actually. Okay. So welcome, Francis. This is the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. Season 5, Episode 4. I'm flattered to have you here. And it's quite an honor to talk to you because I look up to you as somebody who actually reads and does research, as opposed to all the others who follow orders and just comply with whoever they think is authoritative. You just, you know, read your own stuff. You have your own opinions. I don't always agree with you, but at the same time, I respect you for what you do. So welcome. Thanks, man. It's, um, it's a real pleasure uh, to talk to you again. Uh, we had a really good time last time we met in, in Riga. So pretty, uh, pretty happy to be back on your show. Oh, yeah. Last time we spoke in Riga, it was actually for a Bitcoin magazine interview. And you're quite excited about bull Bitcoin and what was going on with becoming a member of the Liquid Federation and also how you were mixing all the Bitcoins coming to the exchange with CoinJoins. And I think to this day, you are the only exchange which does this. Yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not exactly aware of anybody else doing that. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite a crazy journey, actually, um, working with these privacy technologies. Uh, kind of like a lot of the people working with uh, Lightning, um, have been discovering all sorts of issues with it and all sorts of uh, logistical problems. We kind of have this uh, this journey of um, uh, discovering uh, the trade-offs of CoinJoin, uh, having to build new tools, new solutions, uh, new logistical uh, processes to make CoinJoin work. And you know, it's it's interesting because you know there's always trade-offs in life to to everything. And uh, privacy is like, we're very much discovering that there's a lot of trade-off between privacy, blockchain efficiency, and uh, custody, right? So it's, it's very hard to, um, to be non-custodial and to have good privacy and to also have efficient use of the blockchain space. Um, so that's been, it's been cool to discover that. Um, and, you know, on our end, we're kind of leaning more towards um, being non-custodial and being private and uh, having inefficient use of the blockchain. So we're uh, definitely not the best, I would say, uh, um, uh, blockchain citizens in the sense that uh, 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 we like to uh, uh, put our own users first. Uh, so make a lot of transactions instead of batching them, for example, because that's more private. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been awesome trying to figure out you know, how to increase privacy on the blockchain because for some reason, like nobody wants to do that and they're somehow afraid that if they do that, they're going to get in trouble, which is, you know, complete bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Um, and also playing around with, you know, confidential transactions on Liquid that's been very informative at understanding, you know, what anonymity really means. Um, does anonymity mean, you know, impossible to trace or does anonymity rather mean, you know, having a lot of plausible deniability that if someone thinks you're doing something, uh, they might have uh, indication you're doing something, but they can never prove it. 
I think that's more appropriate than, you know, never being able to trace. And uh, it's been fun. Like we, we like to build uh, these kind of advanced technologies at Build Bitcoin where a lot of developers were, um, you know, we have a lot of fun uh, building the app. Uh, and the next thing that we're working on now, I guess, is going to be pay to endpoint. That's the, the next frontier. Uh, I think once, once the exchanges start to build stuff on pay, pay to endpoint, it's uh, really going to be game over for trend analysis. And I, I can't wait for that to happen. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We will all have a blast and possibly eat cheese as we watch chain analysis. <laughs> just, you know, lay off all their employees and surrender <laughs> to innovation. Yeah, exactly. No, it's the 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 the, the operational. I, I don't know. I think it's Peter Woolley who said that it's like the the design objective of Bitcoin development right now is uh, to make them to make them obsolete, to make chain analysis obsolete. Like that's the, that's the, the goal of everything we do is to make these guys obsolete. And I have no doubt that uh, we will be feasting on their tears in the next couple of years. I mean, it's going to be quite a ride. And just for the record, if you're not aware and you're listening to this, Peter Willey is one of the most proficient and prolific Bitcoin core developers. He's responsible for turning SegWit from an idea into an actual implementation in 2017. And that one actually turned out to be a game changer in a time when everyone was convinced that increasing the block size is inevitable. He came up with SegWit, which did it without hard forking. And also Peter Willey right now works on Schnorr signatures and lots of interesting stuff that is going to make Bitcoin much more private, is going to keep transaction sizes small, and that also helps indirectly with some scalability. Yeah, no, no, he's great. And um, uh, he's one of the early Blockstream guys, uh, maybe even a co-founder of Blockstream or something like that. Uh, so uh, I've had the opportunity to follow uh, him and a bunch of the other guys at Blockstream, actually, for the last... Uh, I don't know, six years almost since they, they launched. Because they actually, uh, initially they launched in Montreal. In fact, their office was literally like two minutes walk from the Bitcoin embassy, just as a pure coincidence. Um, so it's been really, uh, uh, really awesome to, to connect with these guys. And uh, I've been, you know, it m- might not be a surprise to some of the listeners. Maybe s- some that don't know me will, they don't know this, but I, I've been uh, a known kind of Blockstream shill my entire life. Uh, I've never worked for Blockstream or been paid by Blockstream or anything like that. I'm just like a huge fan. And um, been working uh, with them on the C-Lightning is the implementation that we use. Um, been working with them on the, the satellite, the, the, the Blockstream satellite. We had the, the satellite at our office. Uh, the last two offices actually that I had, uh, uh, we, we were using the satellite. And uh, using Liquid now, uh, and then the next step is uh, pay to endpoint, which they haven't specifically like developed themselves, but uh, they uh, definitely came up with a bunch of the underlying concepts. So it's been uh, they've been uh, you know instrumental in I think uh, my own personal journey in because um, it's hard it's hard to know you know in, in Bitcoin you say don't trust verify right, but the reality is like I don't have a technical background at all. Um, I had to learn from someone else and you can't always make up your mind uh, yourself. You know, you need some, some people to guide you. 
So one of the things that I that I did a while back was okay. So um, who am I gonna listen to in this space? Right? There's so many different kinds of people that I could be listening to. At the time there was you know Gavin Andreessen and and um, Jeff Garzik and all sorts of Bitcoin experts. And um, you know I just met a bunch of them. And then uh, talking with a few of them, like the the Blockstream guys were the ones that. Um, I saw had the, the best values and best ethics. So uh, uh, I listened to them early on and they really helped me with my own understanding. And now, you know, after a few years, you can make up your own mind about topics, but that I definitely owe a lot to, to these guys. Oh yeah, they're great. Even though sometimes we tend to criticize them, especially for their marketing of Liquid, at least that's something that I do sometimes on Twitter, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I disagree with what some, sometimes they claim to do, because it's not really decentralized and it's not really as they say in terms of making Bitcoin faster. It doesn't make your transactions that much faster, but you know they have to market somehow. But other than that, they provide a lot of value to what is being built on top of Bitcoin. And I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned pay to endpoint because that's a big discussion right now and i don't think i've had somebody on the podcast to explain it so if you have any perspective on it you don't have to be technical but what does it do and how is is it different from the coin joins yeah so it, it, it's a huge difference in in many respects okay so I, I can speak to the point of view of someone who's running a bitcoin business and who wants to protect his users because that's um, assuming that I'm not bullshitting and I actually want to do that. <laughs> this, is, this is my goal. So one of the things that you want to, uh, to prevent is, um, let's say uh, you're running an exchange, you have a database of all of your users, right? You have uh, their names, their personal info, you have when they log in, at which, uh, and, and you also have all the transactions that they did. And um, uh, you, you will have the Bitcoin addresses that they used. Right, so uh, that's just the way that you know data structures work. Uh, and um, if you have people's Bitcoin addresses at the same time as their identity, if someone, uh, for example, hacks that, he can associate everyone's real identity to the Bitcoin addresses, and then from the Bitcoin addresses, he can do chain analysis and um, do what's called cluster analysis. So he will look at uh, from if you have only if you have someone's like one bitcoin address if you only have like one bitcoin address that you know for sure belongs to someone you can figure out a bunch of stuff like how much money they had in the wallet um where did it come from how much money is there left now etc cetera, etc cetera. uh if you do coin join well you know that the you know you you can hide basically or obfuscate the movement of funds like after, right? You coin join. So let's say that um, I know your Bitcoin address, Vlad. Like you give me, uh, I know one of your Bitcoin addresses and um, you mix your Bitcoins with coin join. Well, I can still see before you mixed like where they came from into that Bitcoin address. And if they came from, uh, if they, and if they were, uh, used uh, to pay something else, maybe I can figure out that uh, you did some stuff before you mixed. And even if, if you know, after you mix, uh, you know, of course I lose the trail after that point, but I still, uh, I still can see stuff before you mixed. 
Um, whereas pay to endpoint, there's no Bitcoin address in, on record. It, there's just a, uh, a URL. It's, it's very different. It's like, um, when, when a user, for example, says, Hey, send me money to, to my Bitcoin address, instead of giving me a Bitcoin address for like withdrawal, right. From the exchange, he's going to give me a pay to endpoint address. And like, that is not on the blockchain. There's no, there's no Bitcoin address there. It's my node is going to connect to his uh, server. Like my, my software is going to connect to his software and they're going to directly exchange some, some information that's not going to be within the application database. So I'm getting a little technical here, but basically it's a way for Bitcoin wallets to talk to each other without having to directly exchange Bitcoin addresses, um, which makes it really, really much more private. Uh, it's also a way to have... Um, so it's, it's both a way to, to have payments without giving Bitcoin addresses and also a way to mix coins. So it's, it's really fantastic. Um, like all technologies, this one has a, a trade-off, which is that, um, you know, the, the, the participating wallets have to be online at the same time. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, kind of like, no, it's not exactly like lightning, but it's, you know, you can, you can think of lightning if you want, uh, where the two nodes uh, have to be uh, uh, online to transact and route payments and stuff like that. Or also like Grin, for example, and like Mimblewimble technology, like the two, if you pay someone else in Mimblewimble, like both participants need to be uh, online to exchange information. So, I mean, um, that makes it a little bit complicated to accept pay to endpoint payments, uh, but to send pay to endpoint payments is very easy. So right now um, there's a, a, a few implementations so the, the challenge is to make them compatible with each other. There's, so pay to endpoint is more of a, let's call it a, a technique. Um, and then there's different ways to implement that technique. Uh, currently, uh, there's uh, one in join market. Uh, there's another one in Wasabi and uh, BTC Pay Server. Uh, they're not exactly compatible, but I think they're working towards compatibility, all, all three of them. And there's another one in Samurai. Uh, which is not compatible with um, uh, BTC Pay and uh, Wasabi. Um, so uh, all of these uh, groups are, are building their implementations. Eventually, I think everything is going to be standardized. And um, uh, you got the guys from BTC Pay Server that are building software to make sure that all the Bitcoin wallets can integrate it uh, very easily. So it's it's quite exciting because it you know this thing was a, was kind of like announced or thought of like a year ago, I think. I think it was in January or February 2019 that uh, this idea came about with uh, Adam Back and uh, Nopara from Wasabi Wallet and uh, maybe some others. And then a year later, I mean, it's worked like, you know, it's, it's, it's being implemented. So it's, it's kind of fantastic to see how quick this, this, thing, uh, this thing happened. And uh, it, re- it really... You know, it really kind of destroys all of these technologies are really kind of destroying the narrative of, to me, in my mind, actually, the, the privacy coins like Monero, Zcash and all these things where people say that, oh, Bitcoin uh, is not private. Well, you know, the way that Bitcoin is developing is super interesting because um, the, the advantage of not having full anonymity is you can have easy auditability. So because, you know, because payments in Bitcoin are public, you can audit the amount of coins that are in circulation. There cannot be any hidden inflation bug and stuff like that. But that's a huge advantage. 
Um, but you have the drawback, which is payments are easy to track. Uh, but you have these kind of like quote, quote, second layer solutions, or it's called an application layer solutions, which provide you opt in anonymity, either through uh, mixing or uh, through second layer stuff like lightning or liquid. So you have kind of a big range of options. Um, and uh, for example, in the case of liquid, uh, sure, it's, uh, it's uh, less secure than Bitcoin, um, but you have more privacy than Bitcoin, uh, definitely. And you do have a lot more speed also, but uh, privacy is a huge plus as far as I'm concerned. So it's interesting because you can opt in to have a little bit less security and more privacy for a few payments and come back to the main chain to get back your security. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and I think that's, that's really interesting because it makes the use of Bitcoin flexible. Like not everyone in Bitcoin has the same risk tolerance. Not everyone in Bitcoin has the same preference regarding privacy or anonymity. So the fact that you can have both uh, in different um, techniques is really cool. And, um, you know, the, the, the concept of CoinJoin is also really amazing because um, uh, it maintains the property of security and auditability uh, on the blockchain. But again, you have another trade-off, which is uh, the fees are higher with CoinJoin. Uh, CoinJoin is expensive. Uh, you need to do a lot of transactions and there are very big transaction sizes and the coordinators, um, uh, most of the coordinators will take money. Uh, but you don't ha lose security compared to stuff like, for example, liquid. Um, and uh, you have another set of uh, technologies like Lightning. Lightning is very fast. It's also very anonymous. But in Lightning, you have uh, liquidity issues. And uh, so you need to have liquidity routing. You need to maybe lock some coins into some payment channels. That's another trade-off, right? So, so that's what's amazing is you have all these different options that have different trade-offs and uh, everybody can kind of like find their own fit, but they're all using the same monetary unit. They're all using the Bitcoin value. You know, one lightning coin equals one Bitcoin equals, equals one liquid coin. They all have the same exchange rate. There's no exchange rate between, between these charters fees in and out, but there's no exchange. They don't fluctuate between one, one another uh, as compared to the, the altcoins, which have this huge currency fluctuation risk, which is why like, no one will accept Monero like, for payments. Because anyway, you need to switch back to Bitcoin. Otherwise, you're exposed to the Bitcoin, the price of Monero, and no one wants to be exposed to the price of a shitcoin. It's already risky to be in Bitcoin. Uh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the network effect. So it's been really fun to kind of see the narrative of the shitcoins, the privacy shitcoins, just like collapse um, with, the with these technologies. And, you know, the, the goal of bull Bitcoin and me personally, I mean, it's really just to increase the value of Bitcoin. Like as a Bitcoin entrepreneur, your number one objective is to, one, accumulate Bitcoin, but two, also to make your Bitcoin worth more uh, because Contrary to popular belief, there is no magic algorithm, you know, like S to F ratio or whatever that increases the price of Bitcoin over time. Like the halving doesn't increase the price of Bitcoin. You know, what increases the price of Bitcoin is infrastructure around it, which, uh, you know, facilitates, creates demand and facilitates the demand for it. Uh, so uh, being part of building these kind of uh, solutions, which increase the, and like, because we, we all kind of know, I think that the main drawback to Bitcoin's value proposition has always kind of been anonymity. That's been a, 
always kind of like the Achilles heel of Bitcoin, I would say. Um, so trying to solve that, having fun doing it and increasing the value of our coins, it's just kind of mind-blowing that I'm able to do that on a daily basis. I mean, I can't explain how amazing, you know, your life is when your number one goal every day and thing you do is just to make, you know, Bitcoins worth more by building cool shit. It's, it's really uh, very grateful for that opportunity. Can I quote you on that part about stock to flow being irrelevant and not being some sort of magic algorithm, which just happens by itself after happenings and it's all yeah. about building stuff? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, a, that's been one of the things that, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, I, I'm a very vocal guy on Twitter. Like I, I have very strong opinions that uh, um, in person, I'm much nicer. <laughs> like people who meet me in person, they know that. I'm a very funny and, and cool, cool person to hang out with on Twitter. I, I come out as a, a bit aggressive, but I've been, I've been very uh, upset, I would say, with the stock to flow narrative, um, perhaps more than I should be. And there's two reasons why. The first reason is that a lot of people, they say, oh, look at that. Like there's this, there's this uh, inherent property of Bitcoin, which is the fact that it diminishes in supply, increases the price. And the, the increase in price over time is caused by the diminishing supply, which is nonsense at all, complete nonsense. Uh, because, you know, if you don't have anybody that's buying Bitcoin, like the fact that it's more scarce over time doesn't increase the price at all. Like what makes it more scarce is more people buying it and the amount staying it predictably the same. And it's kind of a defeatist, defeatist mentality to say, whatever happens, the price will increase because that really downplays the role and work of people like me, people like Blockstream, people like, you know, all the open source devs that have like literally been dedicating their entire lives working, you know, basically full time. Like a lot of us have no life uh, outside of Bitcoin, to be honest. Um, and it's like, oh, well, all of their work doesn't matter. Like what matters is this algorithm. Uh, that's been, to me, that's been very uh, frustrating. Uh, and the other part of that is also um, uh, uh, the fact that the 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 S to F ratio is used as a way to pump the price, and as a, and it's 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 a, it's an intellectual shortcut. It's very convenient to show that to a beginner. Say, hey, look at that. There's this there's this uh, algorithm that proves that the price of Bitcoin will go up over time. You can see using this chart that it's guaranteed to go up over time. Um, and I just find that very disingenuous uh, because it's, it's not a proof of anything. I, I think it's, and people say, oh, but how about the, what about the correlation? Look at the correlation of S2F. Uh, and, you know, for, for listeners that don't know what S2F is, S2F ratio is, uh, there's two things about S2F. S2F is a concept called stock to flow which is um, the relative hardness of money over time or main, how a, a currency maintains its scarcity over time. And there's the S2F price indicator, uh, which I'm talking about now, uh, developed by uh, a Twitter user called uh, Plan B, um, which attempts to predict the future price of Bitcoin uh, based on the change of uh, the stock-to-flow ratio over time. And, um, and uh, the, the theory is that they're correlated. So that... Uh, when uh, the halving happens, uh, automatically, basically, the price of Bitcoin will rise afterwards. Uh, but there's only been two halvings so far. 
right? There was the 2012 halving and the 2016 halving. And, you know, the, the 2016 halving, for example, uh, also happened right when SegWit was being developed. Like, shouldn't forget that. Like, when uh, that was when the scaling debate was starting to uh, have a, a solution, right? And then that was also at the end of the, the deflation of the bubble of Mongox. Because before Mongox, the price was 200. It went to 1300. And the, that was an artificial fake bubble. Like everyone knows that the, I mean, not everyone knows, but it, it, it's well understood, at least in my circles, that the, the, the pump of the price in 2013 was caused by liquidity crunches and trading bots and all sorts of shady stuff happening on Mongox and other exchanges. It wasn't an organic raise in the Bitcoin price. There was no more adoption during that time than before. And that bubble deflated like just before the end of the, of the second halving. And then SegWit was created just, you know, uh, pretty much at the time of the second halving. So it's not a coincidence that the price of Bitcoin went up after the second halving. It's because the conditions were just right, right? It, it was, it, it, well, it is, it, 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 it is a coincidence <laughs> that, that it fell into the, that's what I mean. Like, it is a coincidence that, that the conditions were right at this time as a halving. And you look at, you look at today, Right, the second halving is coming. The third halving is coming in two weeks. Super exciting stuff. But I mean, I'm not particularly specifically excited about that in terms of the market. I'm excited because it's like the Bitcoin New Year and it's going to be fun and we're going to have a few parties. But um, the price is for sure going to rise, and people are going to say again that it's caused by the halving. But no, I don't think it's caused by the halving. First of all, you look at the uh, the price over the moving average of Bitcoin. I mean, we're at a very, very, very low price point, generally, just because, right? It has nothing to do with the halving. It's just the price dropped. So it's a low price right now. So can really only go one way <laughs> at this point, uh, up. Like, uh, this is, you know, definitely financial advice, by the way. I really, uh, uh, there, there's been very few times where buying Bitcoin was uh, such a good deal. Um, just objectively speaking, uh, in terms of price over moving average, uh, you can look up an indicator called the mirror multiple. So that's one. And two, you have this huge marketing opportunity from, you know, the money printer, uh, the money printer, you know, it's, uh, uh, happening right now at the same time as the, as the halving. And then you have, um, uh, all of these, uh, ETFs that have come out in the, the, the Canadian ETF, all these things that are coming out. So I have no doubt that the price will rise after the second halving, and it's also going to be a coincidence. Um, so yeah, so there's nothing magical about the price of Bitcoin rising. Uh, it's just people work hard to create value proposition, which increases demand. And people also work hard to make sure that that demand materializes into actual trades. Because it doesn't matter if people want to buy Bitcoin, if it's too hard for them to buy Bitcoin, they don't. So you also have to factor in like the exchanges making it easier to buy Bitcoin, all these dollar cost averaging apps making it easier to buy Bitcoin, um, all of these uh, financial products coming in. Uh, so yeah, so it's kind of a long tangent there, but uh, uh, you really must not think that it's this, the scarcity of Bitcoin doesn't change over time. It's like it's factored in. Everybody knows it's rare. Everybody knows that the you know, almost everyone knows that Bitcoin is scarce, 
Like that's kind of like a given for almost every everyone. And think about yourself. Like, do you think Bitcoin personally is more valuable in two years or is it just undervalued now versus what you think is the value uh, in the future? That's, that's how you have to think about this. Right. And it's very nice that you mentioned the mayor multiple, Francis, because Trace Mayor is so canceled right now. And just because he shilled a shitcoin, we're not supposed to use yeah. anything smart that he ever came up with. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, other than that, I think that stuck to flow is wrong for two basic reasons. It creates unrealistic expectations about where Bitcoin should go. Maybe it will never go to 100,000. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But if it doesn't, according to that plan, and, and it fails, I mean, a lot of people who get in for the reason that they believed in this are going to get out or possibly look into shitcoins and rebel against this whole movement, which deceived them. So it's kind of dangerous. It's kind of like walking on thin ice. And other than that, it, it basically suggests that there is some sort of coordination because every four years this happens, right? So they assume that miners and Bitcoin whales and some sort of obscure forces pumping money into Bitcoin are doing this at this specific time to fulfill something which I think is nothing more than a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think this idea kind of counters the whole idea of decentralization. Yeah, I agree on both points. And actually, regarding the uh, the unrealistic expectation, that, that is what annoys me with price prediction. So Francis, the recurring theme of this season is security. And I have asked different people different questions about what security is and how they secure their own Bitcoins. And I think to this question, you have two dimensions. You have the security of your Bitcoins per se, and the security of yourself as an individual who must stay alive to be able to enjoy the Bitcoins and possibly pass them on or spend them or whatever. But you have to take care of yourself and of your Bitcoins. And what kind of advice do you have in these two situations? What do you use? Yeah, that's a super good question. So, I mean, I have a, I have a very cool perspective on that because... Between like twenty thirteen, late twenty thirteen, and like twenty seventeen, I was um, operating a business or like a nonprofit actually called the Bitcoin Embassy. It was a physical place where people would come and we would help them, you know, set them up with Bitcoin and wallets and that kind of stuff. And I've met like thousands of people, like face to face, like, and it's not an exaggeration. Like you can imagine, over four years, like multiple thousands of people, I've helped them install wallets and stuff like that, and you know, no one's, I've never seen someone's phone wallet get hacked. I'm not saying phone wallets are safe at all. I'm just saying like, objectively, this is a fact. Like no one has ever come to me and told me that their phone wallets got hacked. Um, not a lot of people get their actual wallets hacked unless it's a, it's a online web wallet or an exchange wallet and they lose their passphrases. So I started to develop this, this more like this, this principle, which is that for the average normie, uh, and sorry, and, and then, but a lot of people lose their bitcoins. A lot of people lose their their backups, or they don't back up their phones and they lose their phones, or they forget their pins and they don't have the mnemonic, 
or they have a mnemonic and a passphrase, but they forgot the passphrase. Um, so generally, overwhelmingly, normies and beginners, they will lose their Bitcoins, but not get hacked. Uh, so if, if you're, if, 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 you know, you have to be, you know, reasonable and sensible. Okay. So if you're not like a known Bitcoiner, first of all, uh, you have lower chances of getting hacked. Second of all, if you don't have Bitcoins on an exchange, uh, you have much lower chances of getting hacked. Um, and, uh, uh, if no one in your family or your friends knows you have Bitcoin, then you even have fewer chances of getting hacked. More pe the people that get their Bitcoin stolen, usually it's going to be from a friend and family, from within your house, from within your group of friends, from within your company, um, from uh, a lot of people who get their Bitcoin stolen are from their technical friends who help them install the wallets, uh, these kinds of things. Okay? Okay? So again, not to say that you shouldn't secure your Bitcoins at all. All I'm saying is that sometimes when you go with hardcore security, you increase your chance of losing the Bitcoin. And uh, for example, if you have like a multi-sig, right? So if you have, if you're securing your Bitcoins with a multi-sig, like your own multi-sig, you have two of three. And so you have one key in your house and you have one key at your parents' place and you have one key at the bank, right? Well, you know, you can lose three things instead of losing one backup, right? So you need to be careful with that. Like I personally do not recommend using a multi-sig uh, as your own personal individual cold storage if it's your own coins. Multi-sig in my mind is more of a mechanism for smart contracts, right? Um, like Lightning Network, like all sorts of, uh, uh, of things that use multi-sig uh, for smart contracts. Or multi-sig is very useful if you have multiple people who have ownership of the coins, like a company or a trust or um, th this kind of uh, system where you need to have governance in place. But as an individual stacking your, you know, holding your own stash of coins, uh, multi-sig is not particularly, I think, the best way to go. So what is the best way to go? I mean, very simple stuff. It's a hardware wallet with a passphrase. It's as simple as that, right? So the, the concept of the hardware wallet is that the key is generated on a device that is not compromised. So that's the, the first part of security is generating the key itself. So the, um, the, the mathematics involved in the generation of the key needs to be uh, random, and uh, it needs to be on a device where there's no malware that will affect the generation of the key or keep a copy of that. Uh, so I personally really like cold card. Uh, I've, been a, I've been a user of Trezor my entire life. Uh, until recently, I switched to cold card. Um, you know, I, the Trezor is uh, very safe, right? Uh, but at some point, if you're a person like me who is perhaps a bigger target and potentially also like a target of, you know, who knows, maybe state attackers, state level attackers, um, then the cold card is definitely like a level above in terms of security. Uh, but, you know, I think genuinely Trezor is, is very, very good and, and regular people should, you know, should go with whatever they feel is uh, more user-friendly and, uh, and uh, 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 the better experience. I think Trezor and Polkart are both really good devices. Um, and with a passphrase, of course. The passphrase and the passphrase, you keep it in your head. 
So the uh, and the seed, right? So so get a get a hardware wallet first of all. Uh, the investment is well worth it. Like uh, I've been sleeping very very well my whole life, uh, knowing that my bitcoins are safe on a hardware wallet. Second is the backup, right? So um, definitely uh, make a backup in a place that is physically um, like waterproof or uh, like doesn't need to be fireproof necessarily because there's not many things that are fireproof. But for example, a good way to make a backup is use a vacuum sealer. You write it on a piece of paper uh, and like uh, you fold like a black, uh, like I don't know, or a birthday card basically over a piece of paper so that you can't see through it and you vacuum seal that uh, because you want to make sure that someone isn't like looking inside it and memorizing your seat or something or taking a photo of your seat. Um, and you want to know if someone tried to do it, basically uh, uh, try to tamper with your seat and then add a passphrase and the passphrase uh, don't write it down, keep it in your head. And if you have um, a family, and that's easy to say when you're a guy like me, I don't mean, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a will, right? I don't have kids. And, you know, if I die, well, no one's getting my coins. They're, they're going in the, the Satoshi pile. They're getting lost. Uh, uh, until I have kids, you know, I'll, I'll worry about that later. Um, but uh, if you don't have, uh, I mean, it's a trade-off, obviously, but keeping the, the passphrase to your coins in your head is uh, definitely, you know, uh, the most secure way. And if you need to write it down for, uh, your, your will, your family, or if you want to give them to a charity after you die or something like that, um, then, uh, uh, get, get a notary set up, right. Uh, with that. So, um, really, so just to summarize, it's like get a hardware wallet, back up your, your mnemonic correctly and use what's called a, a BIP38 passphrase, which is that if someone finds your mnemonic, they won't be able to spend the coins. They need your mnemonic and your passphrase. Um, the mnemonic, you will not be able to remember it. So you have to write it down for sure. And if you write it down, you put it in multiple copies. That's fine. It's multiple copies of the same thing. You have one at your place, one at your parents' house, one in your bank vault. Um, you know, not a joke, like just bury one in the forest, like with GPS coordinates if you want. Um, as long as you have a relatively long and complicated passphrase, um, uh, on top of the mnemonic, like people won't be able to take your coins if they find your mnemonic. Um, so the more complicated you get in your setup, the more chances you have of losing a part of your setup and losing access to your coins. That's the, that's the general idea. So if you're not a big target, uh, you know, the biggest threat I think is yourself losing it uh, or someone in your family finding access to your, your backup or something like that. Oh, yeah. And I agree that to some extent, you, you should also consider security against yourself because we are all human and sometimes our memory can fade or our yeah. you know, abilities to do stuff can fade, just like in the case of Hal Finney, because I guess nobody expected this marathon runner to be able to, to not be able anymore to walk and do basic stuff. So that's yeah. something that we should all think about sooner or later. But what about the yeah. situations when you go to conferences and maybe that you have exposed your full name on Twitter so people know who you are, they know that you own Bitcoins, and 
possibly they can follow you to the hotel room, they can follow you home and you go to meetups. I mean, this is still the kind of issue that I have in my mind. Yeah. I know that Bitcoiners tend to be nice, but you never know who shows up. No, you're, you're correct. I mean, and obviously this is something that scares the shit out of me, of course, because I'm, uh, I have the blue check mark, like I have 50,000 followers. Um, people in, like just last night, I was uh, coming back from uh, hiking. I went to uh, a place to go buy um, some uh, cheese. And then someone's like, hey, you're Francis Pouliot. Like, you know, I follow you on Twitter. And I'm just like, this is like my cheese store next to my house. You know, and the guy is like, okay, he could have just followed me and saw where I live. Uh, I'm sure he's a nice guy. He looked super happy to see me. He looked like a fan. But um, obviously that scares the shit out of me. Uh, same thing with conferences. Obviously, if you go to a Bitcoin conference, like don't bring Bitcoins. <laughs> That's for sure. Do not do that. Um, you know, if you go to a Bitcoin conference, like bring a little bit of coins on your phone wallet, just, you know, if you want to pay, there's always opportunity to pay for beer with Bitcoin or something like that at a conference, but like, just, you know, bring like a hundred bucks or something like, don't, don't bring, don't bring anything compromising because there's for sure going to be state attackers there. There's going to be hackers there. Uh, and there's going to be people, people tempted to steal from you, to be honest. That's a, that's something you can't really solve. Like, because, okay. So, you know, you have all sorts of mechanisms that are like, okay. Uh, like cold card, for example, has what's called the break me pin, which is a, a special pin that you put on your cold card and that will destroy the coins. Like it will destroy the cold cards actually. Like, so you need to have a backup before, but it will make the cold card useless. So if someone kidnaps you and, um, he's like, give me your coins. You're like, okay, you put your pin and it destroys the device. Well, you know, they might just kill you <laughs> if you do that. Um, uh, what happens if, so, you know, if they're going to kidnap you and force you at gunpoint to give you the money, if you, like, refuse to give the money, you tell them, hey, I, I physically can't access because I have a multi-sig. They're going to say, well, okay, we're just going to go to the other place where your other multi-sig key is. Oh, well, no, I can't do that. It's, it's at the notary. Well, you know, call the notary and tell them to come over here. Otherwise, we're just going to shoot you in the head. You know, so it's, it's like, how can you stop that from happening? It doesn't matter if you have a super complicated setup. You know, the, the, the bad guy, if he has a gun, he has a gun. So what you can do is you, c you can make it. You can only delay them, right? So the idea is like, okay, so if you... Uh, if you have a, you know, that's why people say multi-sig is good because, okay, you can delay the physical attacker. Well, sure. I mean, you can delay the guy, but you still have to find a way to escape in the meantime. And then at some point it's like, if he, again, if he's threatening your life to give you, to take the money from you, like you basically have to either give the money or fight to the death. Honestly, like what, what other option is there or escape? So, um, but you know, at the same time, like, okay, a lot of people have ducked themselves. Physical attack on big corners do happen, but you know, robberies happen all the time for a lot of stuff, right? Uh, uh, people get robbed all the time. Like big corners, I think don't get robbed more than regular people as, as far as I can tell. Um, but it's like, the only way to solve this problem is by solving personal security generally. I mean, 
owning a gun, uh, not telling people where you live. Like in my case, for example, like I'm going to be moving away from where I live currently, right? I'm going to, uh, everybody knows I live in Canada. I'm from Montreal. Everybody knows that. Um, and I don't feel particularly happy with that. The fact that everybody knows generally where I live, um, or which area of the city I live in. So I'm just going to move. Right. Um, uh, because, uh, I was actually scared when the lockdown, the coronavirus lockdown happened. I actually got a little scared at that time because I was thinking, okay, if someone knows where I live and they've been waiting for the opportunity to rob me, you know, the chaos of a lockdown might be the perfect opportunity for them to rob me. So I actually did get a little paranoid, uh, in the beginnings of the lockdown because I was assuming that if it get much worse, it would have, and there was a lot of chaos. Um, it would have been a, a pretty good opportunity to rob Bitcoiners at that time. I fortunately that didn't happen, but you know, I really don't know what to say, Vlad. I mean, because it's a really good question. And it's always been the problem of a Bitcoin, which is meat space. You know, it's like, yeah, of course, like our wealth is secured in cyberspace, but we're, we're always going to be vulnerable in, in, in meat space. And which brings us to the idea of the Citadel, which, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but, you know, just really quickly, I mean, I don't think it's a silly idea at all. I take it extremely seriously. I think actually, you know, you know, I've been working on bull Bitcoin and bills for the last like five years, almost going to be five years in June. Um, you know, the business is going well. I'm starting to have a lot more free time. Uh, I want to focus my energy on the, on the Citadel. And the, the concept of this, the Citadel is not some like magical fortress uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, in the middle of the sea or anything like crazy like that. But it's just, okay, having a physical compound somewhere in a jurisdiction where you feel protected from the government and you have physical security from outside attackers. And just generally, like, the concept of the Citadel is just, okay, secure, physical security is expensive. That's why we have states, the nation states, right? Um, we have the, the nation state because it's a way to pool our resources to provide for police and military generally. Is, that's the general idea of the government, you know, is to protect the citizens because it's very expensive and onerous and resource intensive to do that. Um, but what happens if you don't trust your government? Well, you need to trust other people at some point, right? You, we can't all defend ourselves against the band of robbers. We need to pull our energy. Um, so I think that the Bitcoiners teaming up together in the physical world by, for example, buying land together and uh, sharing the cost of hiring private security on their land and sharing the expense of surveillance, sharing the expense of fencing and walls and that kind of stuff. I think that's the way to go because we're never going to be safe. Our Bitcoins are never going to be safe, as you, as you said, as long as our bodies and our physical presence is not safe. It's just there's no magic solution to securing Bitcoin if you're vulnerable to a physical attack. But I think even in the situation of a citadel, basically you have to trust that the people who live with you are peaceful and only have the best of intentions. And how can you actually verify that over time? Everyone seems nice and, you know, agreeable in the beginning and they will share the same values and play by your rules. 
But if something goes wrong, I mean, I guess both of us are at the age when we know that living together with somebody in the same space is difficult, be it with a partner or with neighbors. And they all seem nice in the beginning, but after that, it can get nasty. Well, we're going to have to, we have to trust people. I mean, the don't trust verify aspect of Bitcoin is really, it, it must not, in my mind, it must not be interpreted as being uh, an, a universal principle for all areas of life. We need to trust our neighbors. We, we need to, there's no choice and there's no choice, right? But you can opt out of trusting anyone, but at what cost? The cost of being a hermit, being uh, living in a pod, basically, uh, social isolation, uh, um, and a huge personal cost to, for just expenses of your own security. I mean, that's what's interesting about the idea of the Citadel is that you will choose who's your neighbor, right? You will not, you will not move to a place because you like the place and then, it, oh, well, you're going to find a random neighbor um, you will team up with people and decide together to become neighbors, right? So it's not the geography that's going to determine who you trust. It's not chance who's going to determine who you trust. It's uh, uh, it's a set of values and principles. It's like um, it's like uh, um, the Knights Templar in medieval Europe. As that's the way I see it. Like you need to, we need to create a sense of brotherhood, a sense of initiation, a sense of ritual a sense of community, really. And, but, you know, we're all very good at, at I mean, we're, I think everybody is pretty good generally at having intuition about who to trust or who not to trust. Um, I mean, I am pretty confident. I am, I'm good at knowing who I should trust and who I should not trust. And I've just come, with it, come to, to terms with the idea that I'm going to need to trust people. And, um, you know, people trust me. I know people trust me and I know people in my circles, my Bitcoin circles trust me. Uh, perhaps some of them trust me with their lives. And I, I trust some people with my life. I mean, of course I do. Um, the, there's Bitcoiners in Montreal that I'm very, very close to. There's Bitcoiners all over the world I'm very close to. And we're just not, you know, we, uh, at some point you don't have a choice. You have to trust someone, right? And uh, the idea is to trust the fewest people possible, but, you still, I mean, you're still going to have to trust people at the end of the day, I think. No, it has to be the fewest, but the best of people. Because yeah. I, I think I've had a similar situation or a similar conversation, but in a different context with a guest from episode two of the same season. His name is Leo, and he's a software developer for Mycelium Wallet. And I yeah. basically asked him, where do you draw the line between don't trust, verify, and actually trust some sort of developer or evaluator because we don't all have the technical endowment to be able to verify everything. And even if we, right. do, we don't have the physical time to actually deal with everything and verify every piece of software before we install it. So there has to be a threshold where we decide that this can be trusted and this cannot. And the only maybe criteria that we have has to do with reputation and you have to look at people's backgrounds and their activity in the field and the record of what they have been doing and assume that they will keep on doing the same and not have any sort of slippages or changes of character. 
So it's always difficult. And I think the problem of trust, as possibly Nick Sabo and people before him have said, is possibly the greatest of human issues that we have. And if we are able to fix trust, we can actually scale as a society and develop. Yeah, absolutely. Reputation is key, but even reputation is more of a tool because, um, you know, someone can have a reputation, but he can exit scam in his reputation, right? That's, the, that's always been the big problem with reputation is what happens if someone is building your reputation in order to cash it out one day and screw people over, um, which is something that we've discovered, for example, with Darknet. There is no police on the Darknet. There is only reputation on the Darknet. But the vendors of the drugs on the Darknet and all these Darknet uh, marketplaces that have a great reputation, you know, on a long enough timeline, everybody exits scams, <laughs> basically. Um, so I think that Nassim Taleb has uh, found a really good way to, uh, to solve this problem of reputation uh, in, in his book, Skin in the Game, which is, you know, localism, right? So, uh, and in physic, that's why I like the concept of the citadel, the physical involvement, which is if, if you are surrounded by, by people you know uh, and you have to live with the consequences of your actions uh, physically, right? Um, or else you're forced to physically move. You need to impose a big cost, essentially, on breaking trust and breaking your reputation. What I like to do also, personally, is to try to... I mean, maybe it's hard for, for a lot of people to do that. I, I think I've been relatively good at doing that, which is identify the motivation of people and like why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so that's kind of like how I decide who I trust. Um, and I trust a lot of people in this industry, and I distrust a lot of people. But the people who I trust usually are the people that I can see the biggest pain, the biggest suffering or cost that you can impose on them is for them to lose their integrity. Like if someone is driven by ideology, for example, I tend to trust it, which is a dangerous thing because it's easy. It's easy to, it has been easy in the past to screw me over. Like people have screwed me over by pretending to be cypherpunks and libertarians. That has happened. Like if someone is a cypherpunk, like that's not a mistake I, I did many times. I don't do that anymore. But if a few years ago, if someone was a libertarian and a cypherpunk, I would kind of instantly trust them. Uh, and it was easy to pretend to be that to gain my trust. Um, but generally, I try to see like what motivates the person. If, you know, if it's money, then for sure, I'm not going to trust you. Right. If you're motivated by money, I'm not going to trust you. I'm sorry. I mean, I might trust you for another reason, but just based on that, I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to be skeptical of you in the beginning. But if you're motivated by, you know, the struggle for freedom or something of that nature, and, I, and it's sincere, um, uh, then, uh, or if you're motivated by a desire to uh, be remembered as a good guy, there are a lot of people who are generally driven by the desire to be a hero right, uh, in this modern world. There, there's a lot of them. And it's, 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 that, that's one of the things that I use personally uh, when I decide who to trust is like what motivates them. And um, if they decide to screw me over, for example, what are they going to lose? Is there, what are their reputation for? Because if you, if you have reputation to make more money, you know, if you're like a celebrity, whatever, or if you're a, a podcaster and you derive your income from having a lot of views, um, then, uh, 
uh, not talking about you, Vlad, talking about other people. But um, uh, for example, if your reputation is, is only a tool for you to make more advertising revenue, then if you can exit scam your reputation for more money than you get from the advertising revenue, then clearly I'm not going to trust you. There's, there's an incentive for you to sell your reputation at some point. But, you know, I hope that people believe me that I'm genuine where, for example, in my case, like to lose my reputation would be the biggest cost to me. Like I would rather genuinely lose everything I have than lose my integrity because ultimately what I like the most in the world is to sleep well. And I know it's silly, but I really, really enjoy a good night's sleep. <laughs> I like to sleep in in the morning and I like to fall asleep at night. I really enjoy it. And uh, if I'm stressed out, if I feel bad, if I feel guilty, I don't sleep well. And I, I, don't, I don't have a... I can't relax. So that's what's the most important to me. Um, and I guess uh, that's, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. But I agree with Isabel and you. And uh, the problem of trust is the most difficult problem in the world. But ultimately, maybe it's one that can't be solved. And we should just live to accept the risk of trust. And honestly, just rely on our instincts. Like the human homo sapiens species evolved in a tribal nature, trusting each other. And, you know, of course, there's been the, an incalculable amount of backstabs and betrayals in human history. But still, I mean, it's part of our human nature to trust each other. And we have very good in instinct. So I think we should, you know, sometimes just trust our instincts a little bit and stop being too intellectual about trust sometimes. I can agree with this. And I think I particularly like what you said about people who like being heroes. I, I tend to be that idiot sometimes. I try to be, to be, you know, a modern day, you know, American character from the 1930s, like James Stewart or something. And it's a wonderful life. I don't care much yeah. about losing stuff. I just care about feeling right about what I'm doing. And I end up being on the full yes. side because people usually take advantage of you when you do that. So I, I tend to bite back sometimes. But I also think that in the Bitcoin space, we tend to sometimes have, and you have taken a shot at somebody. I'm not going to mention who, but generally, I think that it's dangerous to have people who get a, a huge following and are not able to deliver content to educate and rely basically on other guests. And it's a slippery slope because if we want Bitcoin to actually advance, we need not necessarily leaders, but knowledgeable people who need to take charge of their position and actually educate others in useful ways and in constructive ways. And we don't get that. We have people with hundreds of thousands of followers who basically do nothing but try to generate much more engagement for themselves. And that's it. Time is the great redeemer. So time, you know, reputation is it's hard to gain and it's quick to lose. And, uh, uh, you know, over time, these things inevitably kind of unfold. So that's the thing with trust and reputation. It's like, that's why it's so important to keep it and to work very hard at keeping it and to, to invest, you have to invest in your reputation. You know, it, it's, you need to, you need to actively invest in it 
usually you invest in your reputation by having opportunity costs not to make money by breaking your reputation. So the, the money that you don't make by losing your reputation is an investment in your reputation. And I think it's people should really, really think a lot about investing in their reputation because once you lose it, it's pretty much gone forever. And, you know, there's bad things and good things about internet-based reputation and trust, but one thing is that the internet never forgets. So if you lose your reputation at the era of the internet, the consequence is very great. You will not get it back. And uh, people will not forgive and forget. That's for sure. So, uh, and it's, it's like time preference. You know, the concept of time preference in Bitcoin, it's, it's really the same thing. Is, is uh, you know, you, you should forego immediate and quick benefits, impulsive, you know, pleasures and rewards um, in order to maintain something that will bring you value in the future, much greater value in the future, which is your reputation. Oh yeah, I agree. And I feel like you have brought quite an interesting dimension to the conversation about security. So I thank you very much, Francis. As a closing note, you should follow Francis Puglia on Twitter at, let me check, it's Francis P-O-U-L-L-I-O-U-T and there's an underscore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, fortunately, I have the blue check mark. So just, you know, type Francis Puglia in Twitter and I'm the one with the, the Twitter approved uh, check mark. Yeah, and if you're in Canada, you should definitely use Build Bitcoin because it's the only exchange that coin joins. And it's not just I who says that. There is a huge amount of happy customers. And I'm not even sponsored. I have no idea why I'm showing your product. But <laughs> I think it's pretty great. And you're doing something that should be followed by others. I mean, it's a great example. And I have no idea why so many Bitcoin services don't do it. It's hard, man. That's just, that's just it. And because uh, the customer doesn't notice or care. So uh, another discussion maybe might be that because the customers, they don't care about that. Uh, but uh, we do it because it feels good, right? And maybe one day it'll, it'll pay off. But, um, and also if you're coming to uh, Canada, um, join the Montreal meetup group. Uh, we have a very active meetup. And, uh, you know, if you're coming in town and, uh, you, uh, there's no meetup, just tell us and we'll organize a meetup. We can usually make a meetup every week, every two weeks, something like that. And we have a pretty, uh, close, uh, group of Bitcoiners here that know each other, that are friends in real life, that we, we meet each other in, in real life all the time. Uh, so don't be shy, just drop us a message and we're always very happy to, uh, uh, help Bitcoiners who move to Montreal get uh, involved in the community and make some new friends. Oh, yeah. And you guys speak both French and English. So that's a huge advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, well, uh, Vlad, it was great pleasure to, to be on your show. Likewise. Uh, Maybe next time we can discuss mining with oil because that's a controversial oh, conversation. Oh, yeah. No, we should absolutely, yeah, we should absolutely do that. All right, let's... Uh, Let's, let's, let's do that again soon, for sure. sure. It's uh, one of the most fascinating and interesting topics, I think, in Bitcoin right now. Oh, yeah. So talk okay. to you later. Okay. Bye, Vlad. Thanks for listening, everyone.